This is Bloomberg Business of Sports. The world's changing, and what are things we can do to, to transform our business and engage our fans globally in different ways? People are using their name and likeness to create more opportunities, more stakes in companies. In order to turn the organization around, we had to turn it around not only just on the baseball operations side, but on the business operations side. Football and any other sport is very difficult, but I like to broaden my horizons and be able to expand sports. You need to be consumed live, and that's a big competitive advantage for intellectual property holders of sports content in the media landscape. Bloomberg Business of Sports from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, everyone. I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Mike Lynch. And I'm Michael Barr. Over the next hour, we will explore the big money issues in the world of sports and talk to some of the biggest players in the industry. Talk about big players and big money issues. Guys, let's talk a little bit about what's been going on in the world of sports and business. A very familiar name to our audience, of course, LeBron James. He is not playing basketball right now as the NBA Finals come to a close, much to his chagrin. But the other side of his house, the business side of his house, well, they may be doing some deal-making. We're talking about the Spring Hill Company. And for avid and devoted listeners of this podcast, you'll think back to a year when I sat down with LeBron and Maverick Carter, his longtime business partner, about the formation of Spring Hill. Here's a refresher. As a company, you know, this is a big moment for us. You know, we worked very hard over the last four and a half to five years, really uh, building and shaping our company. And now we bring it to this moment. Where we're able to bring our three companies together and create the Spring Hill Company. But the truth is, we weren't anticipating this moment, but, but what this moment has brought to the forefront is exactly what our mission stands for. Our mission at our company is about empowering greatness in every individual. When you think about that word, empowering and you think about what black people need is empowerment. And that is Maverick Carter. He is the CEO of the Spring Hill Company. That is the media company that he and LeBron James, his longtime friend and business partner, created. The news this week, reportedly, Spring Hill is in discussions with a number of suitors, including Nike, of course, a longtime association. The valuation, about $750 million. This, of course, is a company, guys, Spring Hill is, that essentially enables creators across all sorts of platforms and with a focus, as you just heard Maverick talk about, with a focus on creators who might not have platforms elsewhere, especially people of color. Uh, This is a company that had been built over the preceding number of years leading up to the creation and the formation of the official Spring Hill Company, uh, the combined Spring Hill Company last year. Uh, And you heard Maverick talk about it is a, a company very much that the moment has met. And a lot of demand out there, Lynchy, for this type mm-hmm. of content, so you can see why people are circling around Spring Hill. Well, there we have the shop out on HBO. Uh, Space Jam is just about to be released, the sequel to Space Jam. And uh, in addition to Nike, there's a lot of streaming uh, media producers that are interested, technical companies are interested. And, you know, this, these guys raised $100 million when they started Spring Hill, and now uh, they're going to bump that up to about $750 million. LeBron James, not satisfied just to be a spokesperson or a pitch man for some company, uh, sort of like uh, Victor Kayam. I like the company so much, I bought it. He right. wants to be an owner and an active owner. Well, and it, that's a really good point, too. And, and obviously right there in your backyard, Lynchy and, and Michael Barr, yeah. we've talked about this a lot in this show. 
you know, between the time that that deal was announced uh, and now LeBron and Maverick have, through their work with the Fenway Sports Group, become minority owners in the Boston Red Sox. So, yeah. listen, don't sleep on LeBron. And as as you rightly point out, Lynchy, in days we're going to see Space Jam, <laughs> the new Space Jam. I, I'm going. I'm telling you that oh, yeah. right now. I'm going to see Space Jam. I'm I, all over it. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, you got to think, it, it's a long, far cry. And I'm just going back to the mid-60s when a pro athlete, for the most part, uh, in the offseason, they had to sell insurance just to make yeah. the ends meet. And now yeah. we're into an era where you have the athletes and they're making sound investments. It is something to see. Yeah, interesting. You know, I, I will say it's funny you bring that up, you know, sort of going back, because if you check out our podcast feed, we have a great conversation from earlier in the week with Luke Eplin. It just puts me in the mindset of these, you know, athletes as business people. And he talks a lot about Bob Feller, I believe, who, you know, was kind of an OG when it comes to, yeah. to all this stuff and way ahead of his time. You know, LeBron has set a new template for a lot of these things. But, you know, keep an eye on what's going on clearly over at Spring Hill, because whatever they do, whatever platform they are uh, going to be using, Maverick and LeBron, they're only getting bigger in in so many ways. Uh, Moving on to elsewhere in the NBA, another owner, Ted Leonsis, he caught up with our own Emily Chang. The Wizards, maybe not surprisingly, giving Ted Leonsis' background as one of the founders of AOL. He owns the Wizards and the Caps, uh, the Washington Capitals over in the NHL. They are launching some NFTs. Check it out. I still believe very, very much so in capturing uh, (coughs) moments and using those video assets as tradables, capturing memories. But they've tended to be aimed at collectors. and, And we wanted to, at our teams, to make NFTs understandable and make them approachable. And so we've launched a series of products uh, to our customers, to people that follow the teams on a worldwide basis. Some of them are free, some of them are priced very, very low. And the whole idea was to get people to trial it, to experiment, to understand what NFTs are about. And it's really how can you create memories and create currency so that your fans have a uh, more digitized, uh, more engaged experience. I love that notion, uh, hearing from Ted Leonsis there, the owner of the Washington Capitals and the Washington Wizards, uh, founder, co-founder of AOL, of course, talking about memories and currency, Lynchy. I mean, I, I feel <laughs> like those are two words that are very resonant when you think about the business of sports and, and sort of feathering in the cultural, social, and almost emotional importance of sports. They're launching it with a pretty clever little program, a, a scavenger hunt, uh, where the starting five is, is the pitch here, the starting five collection. And the prices range anywhere from 49 to $299. But 500 lucky people are going to have something airdropped into their crypto wallet if they uh, follow these clues and go around the, the greater Washington, D.C. area 
And I think it's kind of cool because, you know, it gives, it, it gives the, the fans a little like, hey, you know, I own a piece of this franchise right now. You know, you could walk to tell your buddies at work, hey, you yeah. know what, I, I've got an NFT right here and, uh, you know, I, I own a piece of the Wizards and the Caps. There you go. NFTs, you're all over it, right, Barr? Oh, yes, I am. Now, unfortunately, old man Barr, because he's stupid, because I took a quick glance at the headline, Wizards reveal four DMV locations. What, Department of Motor Vehicles? What, oh, they're going there? What the, what, what the heck is that? And then as I started reading the story, I'm like, yeah, that is pretty clever how they'll do it. They're going to have a lot of fun. And it's I can see a lot of people picking up on this. And like you said, Lynchy and, and Jason, uh, the own a share uh, of it, uh, that's going to be kind of cool. Listener, DMV stands for D.C., Maryland, yes, and Virginia. Yes, yes, yes. He went to Georgetown. I went to Georgetown. I know what that means. Exactly. I'm familiar with Inside the Beltway. Uh, well, way outside the Beltway going overseas, guys. All eyes next week go to Tokyo. That's stirring music. We're going to hear it. It's a year late. No one's going to be in the stands to hear it. But the Olympics, nonetheless, let's turn to a full-on expert on the business of the Olympics. We're talking about Andrew Zimbalist. He's a Smith College economics professor. He's the author of the book Circus Maximus, the economic gamble behind hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. So, Professor, let's start there if we can. I mean, this is an Olympics like none other. It's a year late. No one's really going to be watching it in person. What does that ultimately mean for the economics of these games? Well, I think it's widely recognized that this is a unique experience. Games have never been postponed before. They've been canceled during the World Wars, but not postponed. And the postponement cost the Tokyo Organizing Committee about $3 billion. Uh, I think that people are recognizing that there are some risks with hosting the games that they didn't know about before. Uh, So Tokyo doesn't have cancellation insurance. I think hosts going forward will purchase cancellation insurance. Of course, that will add to the massive cost that that already exists. Um, But look, the, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, has been suffering a decline in its reputation and it's, it's shine for the last 15 or 20 years. Fewer and fewer cities are willing to host. The costs have been exploding. There have been environmental and social disruptions connected to hosting the games. And, and this is just one more instance of bad publicity. It's bad publicity for Tokyo and Japan. It's bad publicity for the IOC. Uh, there was, there's been a lot of dithering by the IOC and by Tokyo about whether first to postpone the games or not, and then when, whether to have them or not, and then whether to allow uh, visitors to come to the country to watch them, and that was, th- that was decided against. And then they were thinking about having 50% capacity, but all of Japanese res- residents, and that's been decided against. One of, one of the costs involved here that uh, nobody's really talking about or recognizing is that if the Japanese government has in, in, put in place its emergency uh, for the country right now, uh, because they're hosting the games and because they're concerned about spreading the, the virus and bad publicity that would come if it served as a super spreader event, if that's why they have a state of emergency, well, the cost of the games then escalates enormously because the state of emergency means for the next month that in Tokyo and other major areas in Japan, 
there's not going to be open restaurants. There's mm-hmm. not going to be open bars. There's not going to be open entertainment venues. All of that will hurt the economy much, much more than the initial increase of $3 billion to postpone the games. The overall costs, incidentally, are up in the neighborhood of $35 billion, according to various Japanese audit reports, wow. government audit reports. Uh, and if, if the Japanese are lucky, they'll they'll pull in or the Tokyo Organizing Committee will pull in about $4.5 billion from, from the 17 days of hosting, primarily from international television and sponsorship and domestic sponsorship revenues. But if on the one hand you've got $4.5 billion of revenue, and on the other hand you've got $35 billion of costs, not, not many economists will tell you that's a good investment. <laughs> Well, speaking of sponsors, they're not getting any bang for their buck. They put all this money into the Olympics, and because now that you're not going to have any local fans coming to the games, or any fans for the most part for that matter, all that money that they put into it, it seems like now it's it's almost a waste. Can you comment? Yeah, I think that's right. Look, I mean, when, when, when corporate sponsors – they get on the back of, of uh, sports leagues, sports teams, sporting events. They do it to to burnish their, their reputations. They do it to be associated with something that positive people have positive images about. And it's very hard to have a positive image connected to, to the, the Tokyo Games that are coming next week. Um, so the corporations are spending tens of millions of dollars in their sponsorship programs with the IOC or with the Japanese Organizing Committee. And they're not only not getting something positive, they're probably getting some negative um, images and public relations from it. So, yeah, I think that corporations going forward will, will be much more cautious about the games. And I, I think, frankly, that you know the Olympics needs, needs a lot of reform. And w- one of the major vehicles to uh, make that reform come to pass will be corporate sponsors. Uh, because the fans out there, we're scattered. Our fan, the fans for the Olympics are scattered amongst the seven billion people around the world. We're not we're not going to be cohesive as an organizing group to pressure the Olympics. But I think the the IOC and and the various Olympic hosts are, are very dependent on corporate sponsorship and and corporations. Uh, can, can step out just like they're stepping out and talking out now about the voter suppression issues in the United States. They can step out around this and say, look, we're, our money isn't going to be forthcoming anymore unless you guys clean up your act. When was the last time an Olympic Games came in at or under budget? Uh, well, it, 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 the question is much more complicated than, than you might think because there, there are many budgets with, with regard to hosting the games. There's, there's the budget that, that's put out by the, the host city or the organizing committee, and that budget includes only the operating costs for the 17 days of the games plus some temporary venues to get installed for the games. But then there's a larger budget that also includes the – Olympic sporting venues and the Olympic Village and the International Media Center, um, and and when you when you add those things in, then you're adding probably more than double the, the cost of the operating budget. And then there's another budget, and that budget is the operating, excuse me, the infrastructure budget. So you've got to do uh, a lot of work on transportation infrastructure. Sometimes it's th- things like uh, the trains or. Um, it, it could be roadways. It could be exit and, an, uh, and entrance ramps on, onto highways. It could be parking lots. Um, there's also an infrastructure bu- budget connected to telecommunications and hospitality. Um, so when you put all that together, you, you know you're looking at 
in the case of Japan, as I said, $35 billion or more. But if, if, you, if you're just looking at the operating budget, which is the budget that's published by the organizing committee for the games in each, in each host city, then many of the cities report that they, that they come in uh, with a balanced budget. I think realistically, though, when you, when you add up all of the costs that I referred to, probably the last city to actually come in on budget and, and at least break even overall for the games was Los Angeles in 1984. Wow. So it has been that long since, since this has really been a, a going concern, as they say? Yeah, well, uh, I, I think, you know, what happened with Los Angeles succeeded disastrous Olympic Games um, from a PR and financial point of view in, in Mexico, in Munich, yeah. and, and in Montreal. Uh, and then there were games that were kind of a big blur in Moscow in 1980. So the Olympics was, was on a very bad roll back in, back in the 70s and, and early 80s until Los Angeles came along. And due to a number of, of uh, fortuitous factors, they were they were successful. They didn't uh, get us on the city from uh, obscurity in, into uh, in, into a great urban metropolis in the world's image. It didn't do that, but it, they did break even. They even had a surplus of about $200 million. It was under very special circumstances, but the fact that they had a surplus and they disrupted this terrible trend that was existing for the Olympic Games going back to Mexico in 68 meant now that other cities yeah. thought, gee, look how, look at how much fun and how profitable it is to host the Games. So there's all of a sudden a great demand right. to host the Games after the Los Angeles. And that persisted until the early, early years of this century. And since that time, with exploding costs and, and a variety of other problems, the reputation of the IOC has, has, has gone way down, and the number of cities willing to host the games each, each time they do the bidding, by the end of the bidding, it's one or two cities. It used to be six or seven or eight cities were, were competing against each other. Amazing. But in the case of uh, the, the 2022 Winter Games that will be happening in February in, in Beijing and some towns to the north of Beijing, um, there, there were initially seven cities bidding. And all the way up until a year before the IOC made their choice, they still had seven cities. And then during that year, five European cities dropped out of the bidding. And the IOC was left with a choice between Kazakhstan, Almaty, Kazakhstan, and Beijing, China. The two terrible choices, because the IOC likes to say that it promotes human rights, right. and that's a core value of, of the Olympic movement. But clearly, human, human rights in both Kazakhstan and, and, and China have been abysmal. Uh, so China, the, the IOC was stuck w- with a, a terrible choice, uh, and, and, and they picked Beijing. They had a similar problem with the bidding for the 24 Summer Games, which will be in Paris. But there, too, there are five European cities that dropped out at the end, and they ha- had a choice of only two cities. Uh, so the, the situation has been bad for yeah. the IOC. The, the IOC has tried to make a number of reforms, but they ha- have not been terribly successful in, in doing that. They finally decided in 2019 to put all the bidding behind closed doors so nobody would see what was happening and there wouldn't be the public embarrassment anymore. Yeah. So, Professor, you know, we've talked a bit about this real turn that the Olympics have taken uh, you know, we've also been watching avidly, I think a lot of us, football, soccer uh, of late, especially with the Euros finishing up this past weekend or, or about a week ago as you're listening to this uh, out there in Radio Land. What's the difference when you, because you've studied both and are they on a similar trajectory or, or where is the World Cup versus the Olympics here? 
I think the World Cup has had a different experience over the last 15 or 20 years. Um, they, they, they had uh, really awful leadership for a long time and very corrupt leadership, and all of that all of that got exposed. Uh, and 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 FIFA, the, the World Soccer Organization, has has reformed itself to to a significant degree. They they haven't rid themselves of the problem, but they've reformed themselves. One of the things that they've done is to establish a new relationship with the host country. With with the, with the World Cup, it's a host country, or even sometimes more than one country. Right. Um, in in twenty in twenty twenty six, the U S. will be co hosting the World Cup with Mexico and with Canada. Uh, but they have a different relationship, and that relationship is that the, the the FIFA says that they'll cover out of their own money, out of their own budget, the operating costs of of the World Cup, uh, and that pretty much guarantees the host country won't won't experience a deficit from the hosting itself. Mm. The other thing that's very different about FIFA is that with few with a few exceptions, most of the countries that host the games already have the stadiums. There and available. There are there's, there are exceptions in terms of they they require a larger FIFA requires a larger stadium for the opening round of matches and also for the the, the finals. Uh, and sometimes cities have to or countries have to build one or two one or two venues. Um, but most of these countries are soccer countries. Soccer, of course, is an enormously popular game worldwide. They have the facilities already there uh, as as a generalization. Um, and and therefore, the amount of building that has to be done is much less. And also because the World Cup is spread out over a month and over a whole country, it doesn't all happen in a concentrated 17 days in one city, the logistical problems and the security problems are are diminished and 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 less costly. Uh, so there are problems with with host countries. There are issues certainly, but they're they're not as severe with FIFA as as they are with with the IOC. Uh, and FIFA is not having a problem with finding countries going forward that are interested in hosting the games. If FIFA is the uh, is is what you're aiming to be, that that's a crazy place in in this world, Michael Barr. Oh gosh, yes. It, it, <laughs> I I, w- I was thinking about you, and you mentioned this uh, earlier during the interview that especially in the '70s on down, is that they just was a bad run of luck uh, in, during the Olympics, and I, I think especially of the 1972 Olympics in Munich. And, and yeah. I, I'm thinking about what happened. Anybody who doesn't know, the members of the Israeli team were were killed uh, in a terrorist attack. And right. and I just wonder, ever since then, like you said, with bad luck, why would any city say, hey, okay, we're going to be the one that's going to change this when we've had all these horrific moments? So I think I mean, it's, it's a good question, and I, I don't think there's one – definitive answer, but I think largely what happens, the political dynamic that is behind cities deciding to bid and then to host the Olympic Games fundamentally has to do with the construction industry. Construction industries in most urban environments, most large cities, construction industries are the largest employer of, of workers. Um, and and they have, for that reason, they have a lot of political power and they have a lot of political connection. And, of course, construction companies love the idea of their, their city hosting right. the games because there's billions of dollars of construction contracts that will go their way. And the construction trades, the unions, also love them. 
And so you, you, you have a coalition of unions and executives and owners within the construction industry who go to the mayor, who go to the city council and, and say, hey, let's do this. Or, you know, we can put our city on the map. And then they hire a, they hire a consulting company to do a report to say this will be the cat's meow. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll generate uh, thousands and thousands of jobs and raise per capita income and so on and so forth. Uh, and then they pull in some, some law firms who will be involved with writing the contracts, and they, they pull in some banks who will be involved in floating the bonds to finance all of the construction. Um, and, and you have a coalition of groups that, that is economically and politically very powerful, and, and they push the bid through. That's primarily what happens. It's, it's not a bunch of city planners sitting around and making a calculation that says, hey, this is good for our city. We need to build these, these roadways. We, we need to expand our airport. We need to have uh, 25 new sporting venues. You know, one of the interesting things about, about the Olympics, it does, it does not really apply at all to, to the World Cup, is that uh, you, today you, you need about 40 sporting venues if you're going to host the summer games. Oh my um, usually, usually at least 10 of those venues have to be built. Sometimes it's a little less, sometimes it's a lot more. But you have to ask yourself the question, why, why is it that a particular city didn't have those venues before they hosted the games? And the answer is simple. It's because there was no economically viable reason to have those facilities. And if those facilities were not viable economically before the 17 days of the Olympics, they're not going to be viable after the 17 days of the Olympics. Uh, and, and so you, you have all of these facilities on which you spend hundreds of millions of dollars, if not over a billion dollars in some cases, to build, uh, which, which have no economically viable use. And they're taking up dozens and dozens of acres of scarce urban real estate. They, they require, in order from, to, to maintain them and operate them, it requires tens of millions of, of, of emission, uh, additional dollars every year. Uh, so it's, it's something that's very hard to fathom as an economic proposition for a city to, to do this sort of thing. But again, the, the political power and connectedness of the construction industry and some banks and some consulting companies they push this stuff through. Why would a city actually want to make a bid for the Olympics? It's not based on some rational yeah. view or some ra rational analysis. It's based upon political and economic forces in a city that push this through. Some people are more powerful than others in, in, in our democracy, both, both at a local level and a state level and, and a national level. Uh, and so we end up very often making decisions that are not in the best interests of economic development and social welfare. All right. So I'm going to ask a question that I know uh, Lynchy is interested in. Let's talk a little bit about Boston not getting the Olympics. We've talked about what a bad business uh, this could be. You have studied this pretty intensely. Did they dodge a bullet? Oh, yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I think so. The the, the problems that I've been talking about with regard to hosting the games in general were magnified several fold uh, with regard to Boston. And uh, that, that had to do with a lot of things. But the primary thing it had to do with is that Boston is a very compact and compressed and busy city. There's very little land available. And so um, 
in the in the various Olympic plans, they they had to look far and wide to find a place where they can put the Olympic Village. The Olympic Village is where the athletes and and trainers and coaches live. It's supposed to host uh, to 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 be able to home about sixteen thousand individuals. So you have to you have to build a village to do that because you, they need not only rooms but they also need rooms to live in. But they also need restaurants and they need entertainment venues and they need training facilities and tracks and they need polyclinics for for physical problems and health problems so you're building a real village and they had no place to do that so they came up with this plan in boston to uh, to build a platform a concrete platform over the the area that's current currently in in south central boston uh that that hosts some railroad tracks and some warehouses uh, to, to do that, to build that platform was was going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars. And on top of the platform, um, they were going to put uh, well. In, actually, this platform I'm talking about now was going to be the Olympic Stadium because they didn't have any stadium to use. The the, the the largest stadium that was around to use would have been in Foxborough, but that's too far removed from where the Olympians would be. Uh, so that's that's how they were going to handle the problem of uh, of w- w- not having enough land for the Olympic Olympic Stadium. Stadium. With regard to the Olympic Village, they went to the University of Massachusetts in Boston and found some land where they thought that they could they could build the uh, the, the Olympic Village facilities. The problem there is that they they didn't have any construction company that was that was willing to or, or developer who was willing to to do, to do all of that, uh, and so they started throwing out larger and larger subsidies. Uh, situations where they say, "We'll we'll get you the land for free, or we'll, we'll get it for you for below cost. We'll do all of the infrastructural investment around that. You won't have to pay taxes for 15 or 20 years." And it goes on and on. Uh, so because of the, the shortage of available land, the plans that the, the, the amount of land that they needed which was over 1,000 acres to host the games, wasn't available. Uh, and they had to sort of push, push things aside. Now, in other countries, like in Brazil, when they hosted the games in 2016, they also had a problem with, with land availability, not nearly as severe as Boston's, but they had that problem. So what did they do in, in Rio? Well, they, they evicted 77,000 people out of, out of their homes in, in the favelas, mm-hmm. in, the, in the shanty towns. You can't do that as easily in Boston because it's a, it's a long-established more vibrant democracy. You can't do that. So they had to concoct these other plans that ended up escalating the costs of the games enormously. Uh, so that was, I think, the main thing that w- was going on in the preparation of the Boston Games. But in order to do things like this, and in order to not get the population agitated that they were doing the wrong thing and making the city too congested, they, ought to, they had to do a lot of things undercover. Uh, so one of the things that happened, for instance, is Mayor, uh, Mayor Walsh signed a deal with, with the IOC, and, and one of the things that that deal said is that employees of the city city of Boston couldn't say anything negative about the IOC or the Olympic Games. Uh, and, and if they did, that they would be dismissed. Now, we're supposed to have, I think, we're still supposed to have freedom of speech in the United States, including in Boston. And here was the mayor of Boston signing a deal that undermined uh, that freedom of speech for, for employees of the city. So there were a number of problems. I think a, a tremendous amount of, of mismanagement at the very beginning of the games that that the city was never able to recover from. The uh, Governor Baker um, commissioned a study by by Brattle, Brattle Group, a consulting group in, in Boston. 
to look at the economic feasibility of the games, and, and they came back and they said, no, this is not feasible. It's it, it's irresponsible, and, and the actual costs of hosting will rise well above $20 billion. And Boston was talking about a cost that was under $10 billion. Um, so quite a delta. No, no, nothing was going right there, and uh, I, I certainly think the city dodged a bullet. You know, Andrew, you talked about uh, construction companies, and John Fish of Suffolk uh, Construction was a big force behind trying to bring this. Absolutely, uh, yes. A, a big, big player, and, and a nice guy, and has done a lot for the city. But there was a grassroots group that said no games in Boston. I can't remember exactly what their slogan was, and I was, like, stunned how this grassroots group with very little money behind them just... Their voice was loud enough to be heard, and how much yeah. of an effect did they have in getting uh, the having Boston say we're not interested? Right. So let, let me point out first of all that there are actually two grassroots groups. Grassroots groups. One was was um, sort of to the left on the political spectrum, was progressive group, and another was on the right. Uh, it, it's it, that's that's a, a rare kind of. Uh, coalition that that got formed and uh the, the people on the right thought well there's there's too much government involvement here that the government is providing too many subsidies the government is pushing things too too much too aggressively we don't want the government doing those things in our city the groups on the left said oh this is benefiting all the, the fat cats the rich guys and we shouldn't be spending money in that way uh i'm simplifying their arguments of course a little bit but both of those groups were working together uh and, and i you're right they were doing it on a shoestring budget on the other side the people who were promoting the games were investing tens of millions of dollars in, in their advertising and public relations campaign. Uh, I think one of the crucial features, though, in, in Boston was that the media played a very positive role in the sense that they were willing to cover the debate fully. Hmm. Uh, and it's not that's not often the case. Usually the voices that are loudest and the ones that are heard most in, in, in the media are the ones that have the most resources and the ones who are best connected. Um, and I think in this case, the Boston Globe and the Herald and uh, WGBH and, and, and other media outlets were uh, equally covering the arguments on both sides. Uh, one of the things that was true until the very end is is that the proponents for the games were unwilling to debate the opponents to the games. Mm. Uh, until the very end, John Henry, who is the principal owner of the Red Sox, organized a debate between um, the the proponents and and the opponents. And I I think that that sort of that kind of balance in the media, where you're hearing both sides uh, fully, is is something that's quite r rare. So. Uh, I, I think, in spite of what what Marty Walsh, Mayor Marty Walsh, did, uh, there, there was really quite a bit of open, open and, and good democ democratic processes taking place in Boston. That's why we count on the great journalists of Boston, like Mike Lynch. Yes. All right, <laughs> Andrew Simbolis, thank you so much. That was a fascinating conversation. This is something we're all so interested in, and couldn't be more timely as we look ahead to a very different Tokyo Olympics uh, next week. Andrew Simbolis is a Smith College economics professor and author of a fantastic book called Circus Maximus, The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. Thank you so much. It was really fun. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. So, guys, that was fascinating. I loved that conversation in part because, you know, we all love sports. The Olympics are this thing that we look forward to every four years. You get to do this deep dive into sports that maybe you don't really think about in the in-between times. But as someone who, you know, my first job really was covering the Atlanta Olympics in 1996, you get swept up in it, but you also yeah. forget there's so much economic turmoil and you think opportunity, 
But that may not be the case, Lynchy. I mean, listen, you lived it uh, in the in the prelude, the pre precursor as Boston was debating this. The numbers don't lie. No, they don't. And if you, you look back, as, as he said, the last uh, Olympics that came in at or under budget was 1984 Amazing. In, Los, in Los Angeles. And some could make the argument that they have to go back to Rome in 1960, where it came in under budget. I remember when this idea was floated around in Boston, and people were saying, you know, we don't care. Well, it will raise the, the, the stature of the city of Boston. Well, we feel pretty good about ourselves already. We don't need the Olympics. We don't want the traffic. And what about the white elephants after the Olympic ends? You can look at all these cities that have hosted the Olympics, and some of these venues now are in decay, they're rotted, they're ignored, they're vacant, and who pays for the upkeep, and all kinds of other issues What he didn't even get on with taxes, who pays right. for security, and it's a nice short-term three weeks, but it's a major disruption to a city that really doesn't need the attention. Yeah. I mean, Michael Barr, I've wrestled with this over the years because, again, having seen what it did for Atlanta, and listen, the Atlanta games were far from perfect. They were very commercial in many ways, and the city drew a lot of criticism. Of course, there was the horrible mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, Centennial Park bombing that certainly marred the, the Olympics there. But I will say there was, for a city, for the right city and the right structure, it, I think, can be a good idea. And I'd love to have a follow-up conversation with Professor Zimblist about this. Because in Atlanta's case, it did draw a little more needed infrastructure. But, you know, as he said, Atlanta was a city that probably needed to establish itself a little bit more. And we don't have to tell Lynchy. Everybody knows where Boston is. <laughs> yeah. You know, everybody knows the, the history there. So it, it is interesting that it's not, uh, you know, to use a different sports metaphor, a slam dunk. No, I, it's it, but it goes back to something you just said and, and kind of what we were talking about earlier about. So many of these games have uh, a tragic moment in it. And Atlanta, obviously, it's Centennial Park. Uh, the 72 Olympics uh, with the terrorist attack. Uh, it, I mean, I, I there's so many things that pop in my mind. And I, and I guess I just wonder why would a city want to host the games like this in the first place? Uh, and, but it goes back to what you were saying also is that if you're trying to get notoriety, uh, you know, even Rio was trying to get more notoriety. Yeah. They were like, okay, we're going to go ahead and do it. Well, that's fine during the games, but then afterward, when you have the white elephants all over the place, now look at what's going on. Well, and also this idea, I, I really uh, appreciated, too, what he said about, you know, the the Boston saga, Lynchy, which obviously you know better than anyone, mm-hmm. but this whole notion that, you know, Unfortunately, in in Rio, um, they were able to just clear out. I mean, people's homes. You know, the the favelas, yeah. the the slums there in Rio. It, I mean, can you imagine if? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I'm I'm only slightly <laughs> kidding. Like if you're right, I'm probably being a little overly glib. It's like you know, ding ding ding. You know, like Lynchy goes to the door. It's like um, we're gonna raise your house because we need to build a natatorium here for the upcoming. Olympic Games, but uh, well, it's uh, it's fascinating. Well, remember this: uh, Boston uh, came on the map in the 1700s during the start of the Revolutionary War because they said no. Yeah, and they've actually eventually forced the the British out of Boston in that very same place where they were going to build the Olympic Stadium. Ironically, and but what really struck me is when uh, Andrew told us that you need 40 different sporting venues yes. to host the Summer oh. Games. 40, four zero. Yeah. Now you need to build an Olympic Stadium 
that can host, I think, can seat 68,000, or I think the number is very close to that, but you also need a track. We don't have one of those in Boston. Yeah. You've got Gillette Stadium, but there's no indoor, there's no track there. Harvard Stadium hosts 40,000 40, people, so you had to build it. Yeah. What's going to happen to it when the games end? What are you going to do there? Right. Who knows? I mean, yeah. maybe once every four years you might have the Olympic trials there, but, but that's it. And then you'd have to, uh, if you want to play baseball, do you tell the Red Sox leave for 17 days so we can play uh, baseball and softball at Fenway Park? Right. And right. that's, that's it, nothing, the more people talked about it and examined it, the less and less sense it made. My final takeaway is I really liked the comparison that he made because he studied both the differences between the World Cup and and yes. the Olympics. You know, where the World Cup you can have multiple countries teaming up. It's one sport. You know, you're essentially or you're in most cases not really building anything new because you can essentially say, "All right, Washington, you've got a good soccer stadium. Los Angeles, you've got a good soccer stadium. New York, whatever." You spread it out across the country, and in the case of the upcoming uh, World Cup here and on this continent, they're going to spread it across uh, Canada, Mexico, and the United States, and and obviously with the uh, focus on the United States. But um, but really, really interesting. So it is a book worth reading for sure. It's called Circus Maximus: The Economic Gamble Behind Hosting the Olympics and the World Cup. And that gamble, it seems, just ask anyone in Tokyo right now. Not a very good one. My goal is to be the number one pick. That's something I've been dreaming of since a kid. It feels better to be number one than number five. I wear the number because of Mike. We have a chance to go for three in a row. Good numbers at a good time. When I first started wearing that number, I was just happy and proud. Bloomberg Business of Sports, the number of the week. All right. This time, we're going to have Lynch again. Yeah, good. <laughs> All right. Clay Matthews, he is listed as Los Angeles forever home. Uh, the former Green Bay Packers linebacker and his wife. Uh, it's a newly completed French provincial estate in Los Angeles. How much are they listing it for? No, have you ever dabbled in the real estate business? Because you <laughs> love to throw these mansion uh, I love prices it. out there. I wonder if he's got a side hustle selling houses. <laughs> I wish I did. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go. By the way, uh, let, me, tw- let, me, let me be fair. Uh, the main house, it's on a 1.65-acre estate, and the main house is about 14,000 square feet. Okay, that means nothing to me. Um, so, <laughs> Look at Lynch, you're all bamboozled. Now he's going first. I like it. Well, since two of my daughters are looking for homes, and everything always is like in the nine, like, okay, it's five ninety nine, it's four ninety nine, so it has to be 99 on the end of it. So <laughs> I'm going somewhere between 20 and 30 million. I could go 24, 9. I'm going to go 24, 9.99. I'm going to take the over uh, on that just because the way you describe, I don't know, and I don't know much more about square footage and things like that, but I'm just going to assume because it's LA, it's more. So I'll go. I'll go th- thirty million. <laughs> all right. If, Lin- a- if Lynchy wins this going right, first, I'm, I'm walking I'm, out of I'm the a- studio. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the answer here. All right. Now if we're going by prices, right rules. Jason, you you just missed it. Oh, it's twenty nine point huh? nine nine five million. Well, that's right. that's yeah. thirty million. All right. Okay, yeah. but 
but you you kind of overbid. Yeah, you know? all right. Like, so I I'm, you... I'm standing I'm standing there with the like the womp womp. No, but but you but you're there. You're yeah. there. I I got to give it to you on that one, man. It's like, I was just great to, just to hear uh, Lynchy man all 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 discombobulated. It's like I'm going first. I, I, the other story I was going to do was the one about uh, Scottie Pippen. He is opening up his Illinois home as oh. an Airbnb. And uh, you can uh, watch the uh, Tokyo Olympics, the USA basketball team. And for a night, it was 92 bucks a night. Oh, oh all right. Oh, oh. That's cool. And if that just no- to, oh. to, so you just like, you, you sort of bunk in there. He's not there with you, right? No, he's going to greet you when you walk in the door. Wow. Oh. Oh. And, you, and you get a meal. Uh, you get snacks, you get to hang in the indoor basketball court, the theater, the arcade room, the pool. I, I see a remote broadcasting possibility here. Like, that's a bit, yeah. you know, like, let's head out, let's, let's head over to Scotty's house, get him on as a guest, you know. I'll pay for I'll pay for the house. Yeah, we can watch the Godfather. Exactly. There. Can That'll you pick great. up some chips? Yeah, you know, I'll let get you some bring Doritos. <laughs> let you pay, bring you know import some Sam Adams from Boston. It'll be good. Sure. It'll be good. Perfect. All right, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports. We're here each and every week for you at the same time, plus online wherever you get your podcast. Those drop on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Looking forward to a very different Olympics, but Olympics nonetheless. Uh, You just hear the music, and it just, you know, makes you feel good about sports. I'm Jason Kelly. Find me on Twitter at Jason Kelly News. And I'm Mike Lynch, still trying to figure out if I won or lost number of the week. (laughs) I have not been officially notified. (laughs) The judges are going over this. (laughs) You can find a confused Lynchy at LynchyWCDV. And I'm Michael Barr on Twitter at Big Bar Sports. You're listening to Bloomberg Business of Sports, Bloomberg Radio, around the world.